The following broadcast is produced by Brookside Meeting House Companies, LLC, doing business as Forget-Me-Not Ancestry. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jane Wilcox, and this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Welcome to the show. This morning, uh, we're going to be talking about Sir William Johnson, Molly Brandt, and the Mohawk Valley during the Revolutionary War. Now, if you are a student of New York history, uh, these people are really important. Um, And sometimes they're not even known uh, by people who do study uh, New York history or, or doing their research in, uh, on their, of their ancestors in New York. Um, so today we're going to find out who Will, Sir William Johnson was, who Molly Brandt was. Uh, she was his consort. And we're going to talk about who was in the Mohawk Valley uh, up, leading up to the Revolutionary War. And then the Mohawk Valley was really a tumultuous area. Uh, it was uh, the, the Revolutionary War basically was a civil war, uh, it, especially in that area. And there were a, a lot of things that happened in the Mohawk Valley. So we're going to be talking about uh, loyalists in the Mohawk Valley and uh, the corresponding patriots. And then at the end of the show, we're going to find out what happened to these loyalists. So we're going to be focusing on the loyalists and uh, the types of records that uh, we can find that have our Mohawk Valley people um, up leading up to the, the American Revolution. So uh, joining us today is Michael Perazzini. He is the senior interpreter at Johnson Hall State Historic Site. And I went to Johnson Hall at the beginning of January. I had never been there before. And I just, I loved it. Uh, the tour was wonderful. Mike, uh, Michael did a great job explaining uh Johnson Hall, Sir William, and Molly Brandt. And so uh, he's here today uh, to share his expertise on uh, Johnson Hall and the people who lived there and the the Mohawk Valley. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Jane. It's great to have you here. So um, as I ask all of my guests at the beginning, uh, tell us about yourself, your background, where you were born, where you were raised, your education, and your careers. Well, originally, I'm from Fairfield, Connecticut, which is down on the Connecticut coastline. Um, In high school, I volunteered at the Fairfield Museum and History Center, which is a a small uh, museum in uh, my town. And I graduated from Siena College in 2013 with a bachelor's degree in history and a certificate in uh, Revolutionary Era Studies. And I was fortunate enough, while I was studying at Siena, to study abroad at both uh, Siena, Italy, and then I actually interned at Saratoga National Park. And so... I certainly embraced history from an early age. Definitely. And so when did you join uh, Johnson Hall? I joined Johnson Hall after I graduated in 2013, actually the summer of 2013. I was a historic interpreter, and eventually I worked my way up into 2014 to become the senior interpreter here. Wow, wow. So you've been there for about three years as senior interpreter. Yes. Okay. All right. And then was your experience with the Fairfield uh, Historical Society, was that 
that how you got interested in history, or is there another story? I've kind of always been his, uh, interested in history. Uh, my grandfather was a veteran of World War II, and so um, just digging in and talking with him about uh, what he experienced and stuff like that at, at a very early age kind of turned me on to military history and then history in general. Okay. And then you mentioned when I was at Johnson Hall that your focus uh, when you were studying at Siena was uh, loyalists. Will you tell yes. us about that and who you were, who you were studying? So actually that comes from the Fairfield Museum and History Center. Uh, I didn't really initially uh, like to study loyalists. I like to study patriots, as kind of everyone does. And um, I was there as an intern um, in my senior year of high school, and it was the anniversary of the burning of Fairfield in July of 1779 by the British. And there were some questions that needed to be answered. And so my volunteer uh, coordinator, Walt Mattis, um, he said, all right, sit down, try to figure out some of the answers to these questions, and one of them being um, who a particular loyalist was in general and uh, what his life was like. And so that kind of got my brain going and uh, kind of delving into what the, who the loyalists are, and uh, I've kind of uh, been fascinated ever since. And you mentioned that in particular uh, you were looking at loyalists from certain areas. Uh, tell us yes. about that. So I, my study in my, my final paper at Siena was about loyalists from southern Connecticut, Long Island, and then the Hudson Valley. And so it focused on kind of this um, emigration from uh, southern Connecticut to Long Island of loyalists, the lo then the loyalists that stayed in Long Island, and then the loyalists that were up and down the, the Hudson Valley that uh, were fighting kind of constantly during the war. I, I did not realize that Connecticut loyalists were going to Long Island. Yes, uh, kind of early on, um, they were forced out, and so um, especially those along the coastline were forced to to flee to Long Island once it was held under uh, by the British and by uh, okay. British command. That makes sense. I had not thought about yeah. that uh, because all of my ancestors in Connecticut are patriots. Um, yes. So hadn't, hadn't thought about that. Um, <laughs> so are you interested in your own uh, genealogy and and family history? I am interested in my own uh, genealogy and history. Actually, when I studied abroad, um, one of the classes I took was Italian emigration. So I actually had to compile my family genealogy and um, figured out where everyone was from. Fortunately enough, everyone um, from my family is from Italy and came in either the late 19th century or the early 20th century. But um, I certainly uh, do have an interest in my own genealogy and ancestry. Okay. All right. Uh, so let's uh, zero in now on our topic today. So uh, starting with Sir William, who was he? Uh, where was he born? How did he get to America and onto the Mohawk Valley? So Sir William was born in 1715, around 1715 in County Meath in Ireland. Um, he was raised in an, a middle-class Catholic family. Um, his mother was Old English, and his father was descended from the O'Neills of the Few, which is a dynasty um, in Scotland and in, in Ireland. Um, he was raised Catholic, but ultimately converted when he uh, came to the colonies in 1738, when he was 23 years old. Um, he came to the Mohawk Valley to work for his uncle. His uncle was Peter Warren, Admiral Peter Warren, um, in the Royal Navy, and so he had some land in the Mohawk Valley that needed to be developed, and so he asked his young nephew, a young William, to come over and to work that land for him and to bring over some Irish tenants to do that. And so that is how William comes over into uh, the, the Mohawk Valley. 
And when you say Irish tenants, were they? I, I have heard that uh, Sir William also had Scots Irish and Scots tenants. So were, were these these uh, truly Irish, or were they Scots Irish? The initial uh, tenants were um, Irish Protestants, we believe. Um, but then eventually, as time goes on and he sets out on his own, he does get Scottish tenants and then Irish Catholic tenants as well. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then what happens when he gets to the Mohawk Valley? Well, he uh, gets into the Mohawk Valley, begins to develop the land, and his uncle really wants him to get into the fur trade. Uh, the Mohawk River is kind of the superhighway tr- transporting furs from west to east. And so his uncle sends him things to sell for fur. Um, it ends up being horrible goods, um, kind of sh- uh, cheap um, linen and stuff like that, and wool that was moth-eaten. Uh, William realizes that he can't actually sell this or, or give this to the natives, and so he continues to tell his uncle, send me better things, sell me better things. Um, unfortunately, he does it, and eventually uh, William realizes, you know what, it's better for me to set out on my own. I know what I'm doing. And so he breaks away from his uncle, sets up his own trading post, and begins trading uh, primarily with the Mohawk Indians, who are uh, primarily um, where he was from and living in the Mohawk Valley. And do we know where the trading post was? Uh, one of them would have been around Florida, uh, New York, which is on the other side of Fonda. And then um, he, when he does come over and build his own trading post, that would have been at Mount Johnson, around uh, Mount Johnson, which is his first home on his own in the Mohawk Valley. And that actually would have been where the Amtrak station in Amsterdam is. Unfortunately, that house um, doesn't exist anymore, though. Okay. All right. So that so when he's establishing himself on his own, he's in the Amsterdam area. And then then how how do we get to Johnson Hall? So he uh, he develops the, the kind of the Mohawk Valley fur trade. Uh, he develops a relationship with the Mohawks. In fact, he's actually adopted into Mohawk society as a sachem and given a uh, Mohawk name, which Waragehi. Um, it's from there that he be- continues to kind of. Um, force himself um, or into Indian affairs in general and making himself the intermediary between the Mohawks and the British and the colonists. And so he slowly begins to rise and use this uh, initial success that he has in the fur trade to uh, put that into a career in Indian affairs. And eventually um, he rises up through the ranks. He works his way first as the uh, colonel of the warriors of the Six Nations. So he's in charge of getting uh, native warriors to fight for the British um, against the French. And then later, um, after successes in in battle at the uh, Battle of Lake George in 1755, he becomes the superintendent of Indian affairs for the northern colonies. And so um, he builds Fort Johnson in the late 1740s, and eventually he builds Johnson Hall in 1763 as his kind of final home. Okay. And then where was Fort Johnson located? Fort Johnson is was located on the Mohawk River. It's uh, now at, in the city or town of Fort Johnson, just outside of Amsterdam, and it's about ten miles away from Johnson Hall. Okay, all right. So it sounds like he was well respected among the Mohawks. He certainly was. Um, he he was known for his fair trade practices. That is something that um, he's recognized for, and the fact that he he knows the language too. He he um, learns Mohawk so that he can speak with them. He also begins to know the culture and the traditions that the Mohawk holds. And so um, by doing that, um, he begins to build a better and better relationship with the Mohawk. And then when he became superintendent of Indian Affairs, 
had anybody else uh, held that post prior to Sir William? So before that time, each colony has its own Indian Affairs Department with its own Indian Affairs policy. And that was kind of the thing that the Albany Congress um, that uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, creates um, in the 1750s and 1754. He wants to, to kind of unify one Indian Affairs policy. And um, unfortunately, that doesn't happen. But after uh, William's victory at the Battle of Lake George in 1755, um, he is in charge of Indian Affairs for the Northern Colonies, meaning he's dealing with the Six Nations and their dependents. And then eventually after the uh, victory of the, of the French and Indian War, he deals with the Canadian uh, natives as well. Okay. And so did that include the New England natives as in his yes, uh, role? Yes, it does. Okay. So, so anything like north of uh, Pennsylvania? We say around North Virginia um, is kind of his okay. territory. So north of Virginia all the way up through Canada and then out west to the Ohio Valley. Uh, that being said, though, we do know that some southern Indians did treat with William. In fact, we know that um, the Cherokee come up here to hold a treaty at Johnson Hall between um, the Cherokee and the Iroquois, um, which was happened here at Johnson Hall. Oh, very interesting. So then what was he doing as superintendent of Indian Affairs? So his job is to act as an intermediary between the um, British government and the Native Americans. Um, so basically he's an ambassador to the Native Americans. And so he's making sure that their grievances are being heard, that um, colonists aren't taking away their land from them unfairly and unjustly. Um, he's also purchasing land on behalf of the British government um, from the Native Americans. And so uh, that's kind of what his uh, roles encompass. Uh, during the French and Indian War as well, he's also um, recruiting Native warriors to fight for the British against the French. Okay. And, and uh, so then how did he meet his first wife in all of this? Um, he actually meets her soon after he comes to the colonies. Um, Catherine uh, Weisenberg, who is his first uh, wife, uh, was a Palatine German indentured servant who was actually a runaway. Um, and he met her around 1739, 1740, we believe. And so uh, he actually takes her in at his first house, Mount Johnson, and uh, he has three children with her, John, Anne, and Mary. Okay, and, and then there's some question. Was he actually married to her? We do not know. He does refer to her as his wife in his uh, will, um, but there is no record of a ceremony between him and Catherine. So uh, we actually refer to both of his uh, uh, women, both the women that lived with him as the common law wives or keepers of the house. Okay. All right. Uh, and then, speaking of the the second one now, let's let's talk about Molly Brandt. Uh, yes. Tell us about her. So Molly uh, would have known kind of Sir William throughout uh, her life. Um, she was born and raised in Canjahari. Her brother was Joseph Brandt. Um, her mother was a matron in the Wolf Clan, and so uh, very well connected. Um, she did have some education. She traveled to Philadelphia. But um, she would have known about Sir William um, due to his great relationship with the Mohawks. And there's actually an interesting story about how uh, Molly and Sir William met. Um, it's said that there was a parade that happened um, at Fort Johnson, and there was a, a young officer 
Jackson that was riding on a horse, and Molly Brandt uh, leapt up onto that horse in a single jump and rode away. And it's after that point that um, Sir William knew that he wanted to uh, marry that uh, woman, that being Molly Brandt. Unfortunately, that is um, just a story, but yeah, she kind of uh, would have known Sir William throughout her life. Okay, all right. And then and she's known as his housekeeper, is that correct? Yeah, she's she's referred to as the lady of the house, um his housekeeper and in the will is her his housekeeper. Um there is like I said there's no um record of a marriage. We know that though um one of her sons, George, up in Canada, um says that there was a ceremony between his parents in accordance to his mother's people. So uh, we're not sure if that was a Mohawk ceremony of some sort that made um, them to be uh, allowed them to be married of some sort, but we do know that she was living here and acting as the lady of the house at Johnson Hall in Fort Johnson. Okay, all right. And then uh, uh, my understanding, she was baptized. Is that correct? Yes, yes, she was. Um, at that point, um, the Mohawks that are living in uh, Canajoharie and then down by Fort Hunter um, are all uh, Protestant Mohawks, and so they would have been baptized. Okay. In in what, like a Lutheran or Reformed church or Anglican? They would have all been Anglican, yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, and, and actually, I've seen some baptisms. Um, I think it's in one of the Reformed church, maybe Stone Arabia, uh, in the 1730s. So it's, it's interesting you know, that uh, yeah. uh, with that. So then um, Molly and Sir William together, uh, how do they – come to Johnson Hall? When is Johnson Hall built? So um, Catherine Weisenberg, she dies in April of 1759. Um, And in September of that year, Peter Warren Johnson is born, which is Molly's first child with Sir William. Um, So we know that there was a relationship um, before that point. Um, Molly stays at Fort Johnson and uh, is the lady of the house there. Uh, eventually, though, um, in 1763, Sir William begins to build Johnson Hall. He'd been planning to build Johnson Hall um, before that point, uh, settling tenants up here as well and uh, building some other outbuildings before that point. And then they do eventually come up in 1763 to Johnson Hall. Okay. And and why did he choose that particular site for Johnson Hall? It's because he has all this land. Um, he has the Kingsborough patent, which is what Johnson Hall sits on, which is 50,000 acres or 50 square miles. And then um, he wants to begin to develop that land. And then right actually directly next to the Kingsborough patent is the King's Land patent, which is another 50 square mile patent. So uh, he has the land up here that he uh, can expand upon. And so um, he wants to build um, uh, and develop up here. Okay, and about how many acres altogether uh, did he own in New York? We say around uh, 200,000 to 800,000 acres of land. Um, We know that some land is gifted to him. Um, We know he he purchases land. We know he has some mining rights to land. And so um, in total, it encompasses around anywhere between 200 and 800,000 acres. Wow, wow. Okay, and then did he try to populate uh, the land that he had, or what? 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 What would? What was he going to do with all of these acres? So, like I said, uh, some of it was just mining rights, and then some of the land he wanted to eventually uh, develop. So we know that in the Johnstown area, he's bringing people up, uh, tenants up, to settle his land and to work his land. Um, certainly, with the sheer amount of land that he owned, you can't. Uh, 
you can't populate that, especially in, in, in one generation or a lifetime. And so he was slowly beginning to develop it. We know that um, in his will he talks about uh, and mentions giving away both developed land and undeveloped land to all of his children. So there is quite a, amount, there's a quite deal, uh, amount of deal of uh, undeveloped land that um, he has. And so the hope was to eventually begin to develop all of that. Okay. And then how many children did Molly Brandt have with Sir William? They have eight together. Okay. So he's got three from the the first wife and then... Yes. Yeah, eight. And then eight. From, his, okay. from Molly Brandt, yeah. Okay. All right. And then Molly, in her own right, was well-respected uh, and worked with the... Uh, Iroquois and and British in in their relationship. How what, what was she doing in that role? Well, uh, being that she would eventually become a clan matron, she's very well respected. And the, the relationship between um, Sir William and Molly can kind of be seen as a European style um, strengthening of alliance um, by Sir William um, having uh, Molly Brandt as a lady of the house at Johnson Hall. Um, he's uh, risen in, in a status amongst the Mohawk and the Iroquois, and by Molly Brandt being the lady of the house at Johnson Hall, she's risen in status and uh, amongst the British. And so they use that both to our, their advantage, and certainly Molly, um, if people aren't listening exactly to what uh, William says, Molly goes out on his behalf and talks to them and makes sure that they all uh, get in line. Okay. Okay. And then uh, before we uh, take a break, uh, when does Sir William die? Sir William dies in 1774, uh, in July of 1774. Um, he's actually holding an Indian conference here at Johnson Hall. And um, after a long oration, he calls for tobacco and rum to be passed around, and then he collapses and is eventually brought into his house at uh, Johnson Hall and then expires a few hours later. Okay, and then where was he buried? He's buried at St. John's, uh, what was St. John's Anglican Church, now St. John's Episcopal Church. He was buried in the altar of the church. Okay, all right. Uh, we are going to take a break right now. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. This is the Forget Me Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. As you're listening on Blog Talk Radio, you'll see a bunch of buttons. If you press the follow button, you'll receive an email letting you know that the show is going on the air, what the topic is, and who the guest is. Uh, You'll also see a bunch of social media buttons. Please share the Forget Me Not Hour uh, with your friends and family on uh, social media. Uh, Also, uh, the Forget Me Not Hour archives is housed on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, So take advantage of wonderful shows uh, from the past six years. Many of them are timeless. And you can listen to the Forget Me Not Hour on the go. Uh, You can find it on iTunes uh, under Jane E. Wilcox. Um, So uh, lots of ways to, to listen. Uh, So today we are talking about uh, Sir William Johnson, Molly Brandt, and the Mohawk Valley. Uh, Michael, uh, one question about the Mohawk Valley. What is the Mohawk Valley? What what are our boundaries when we're talking about the Mohawk Valley? Um, We like to think of it as the entire, the Mohawk River. And so um, then up the northern boundary would be around... uh, the Adirondacks, and then uh, the lower boundary is um, down by the, where the Susquehanna Valley begins. Yep. Okay, and, and co- then coming over from Albany? Yeah, so starting, Albany is the uh, extreme east point of the Mohawk Valley. Okay, all right. So then who were the people in the Mohawk Valley prior to the American Revolution? So you have a great mix of people. You have you Dutch, you have Palatine Germans, um, you have Scots, you have Irish, you have Highland Scots, you have English, and then you have Native Americans um, who were the initial inhabitants of the Mohawk Valley. Um, you've got two Mohawk castles by the time that Sir William was around. There is Tiagaroga, which is Fort Hunter, and then you have Canjahari, which is uh, right about where Little Falls would have been, not, not where actually the uh, town of Canjahari is now, but uh, the original Canjahari would have been around where Little Falls, New York is. And then okay, and when you, say some... Mohawk... yeah. when you say Mohawk castles, will you uh, tell us what those are? So they would have been palisade, uh, palisade walls uh, made of um, wood, and they would have they were called castles by the European colonists that came because that was the closest thing that they looked like were um, castles. So usually, on the top of a hill, um, easily easily defensible um, and protecting the village that was inside. Okay, all right. So then, for the Mohawk Valley uh, of the the five six nations, uh, we're talking Mohawk. Uh, and, yes. And then as we okay. And there were certainly other uh, members of the Six Nations that were living amongst the Mohawks in the valley, but it's primarily Mohawk that are here. Okay. All right. And I interrupted you. You were going to uh, say more about the people. Yeah, there's um, there's some hamlets where particular groups were living. So in a certain area, there might be just a small group of Palatine Germans or a small group of Touch. But for the most part... Uh, they are living and intermingling with one another. Okay, and are they? Is all of this Sir Johnson, Sir William's land, or do we have other uh, patentees who are renting out land? Are they owning the land outright? So there's some people that are tenants of the Johnson family. So there are kind of. Um, there is Sir William, who is uh, the first baronet of New York, and he has the, the most land. 
But you do have his son, Sir John, who has land and some tenants of his own. You have his nephew, Guy Johnson, who is a secretary in the uh, Indian Affairs Department with William. And then you have his uh, son-in-law, Daniel Klaus, uh, who also uh, has land and tenants as well. And those are the big ones. You do have uh, some other families, though, that have their own land, um, small plots of land, and then um, their own tenants. And so, But those are the, the Johnson family is the big family that's in the area. Okay, so similar to, I, I do a talk on the Hudson Valley uh, uh, manors. Um, so we're talking the equivalent of the Livingstons and the and the Beekmans and and other families yes. like that. Okay. Sir William, unfortunately, uh, never got to get manorial status for Johnson Hall. At that point, they weren't granting a manorial status anymore. But he certainly built up Johnson Hall and. Um, to be like one of those uh, English manners that was happening in the Hudson Valley. Okay. All right. Uh, and so then, in general, uh, how are these people getting along with each other? Um, there were some small grievances between neighbors and groups, but um, Sir William, for the most part, keeps the peace. He's the biggest figure in the valley, and so everyone does kind of business with him, and so if you're doing business with him, um, you have to be nice to everyone else. Um, if you kind of look, you can kind of see um, who the people of the Mohawk Valley are by looking actually at the initial members of the St. Patrick's Masonic Lodge, which is the uh, Masonic Lodge that Sir William creates here in Johnstown. Um, and you could see that there's people from all different groups, all walks of life that were here in the Mohawk Valley working with one another. Um, and it's after only after Sir William's death that this power vacuum that he leaves behind um, leads to larger grievances and problems between the groups. Okay. All right. Is there anything else? Uh, you're leading us up to the American Revolution. Is there anything else you'd like to add at this point before we talk about the war? Well, nothing right now. Um, we do know that the, there's committees of safety that were set up in the Mohawk Valley, um, starting in Albany and eventually Schenectady and, and then the Mohawk Valley itself. And, um, the, Mo uh, the Johnson family was staunchly loyalist, and um, they're at constant odds with these committees. Um, for the most part, the committees are made up of, of Dutch and Palatines that sided with the rebels. Um, the Scottish, the Highland Scots, and the English and the Mohawk sided for the most part with the British. And, of course, there were exceptions to, to this, um, being that this is America's first civil war, and families and neighbors uh, do end up on, on both sides. Okay. And then... The Mohawk Valley was particularly bloody, uh, in, yeah. in particular Oriskany. Um So, what's okay? They, they, the people are aligning themselves with one side or the other, or or maybe on the fence. So, how does this all play out during the American Revolution? So, it is incredibly bloody, and a part of this does have to deal with the fact that um, families are on both sides. Um, it should I should say it's actually incredibly rare that the fact that the Johnson family, the entire family, sides with the British. Um, for the most part, families are split up, and it's because of this that it, it leads to hostilities. You have families um, like the Devendorfs, the Nellises, the Docksteaders, the Herkimers, who have members on both sides of the war. And those are all families in the Mohawk Valley. Um, and it's because of this that it becomes incredibly, incredibly bloody. And so leading up to the uh, the St. Ledger campaign of 1777 in the Battle of Oriskany, you have loyalists that are being forced out of their homes. Um, in 1775, Sir uh, 
Sir John is uh, forced to fortify Johnson Hall, and then Guy Johnson is actually forced out of his home at Guy Park, and he goes up to uh, Canada. Um, and then in 1776, um, Sir John is forced out of his home, and he brings with him over 100 loyalists, um, and servants, slaves, and then um, he does have some tenants that are with him as well. And so it's because the, these families are forced out that when they come back, they come back with a vengeance. Okay. And then when was the Battle of Oriskany? Battle of Oriskany was in 1777. It was during the St. Ledger campaign, during the Siege of Stanwix. Okay. And and why is it uh, so notable? Uh, it's notable because um, for a few reasons. First off, this was initially a relief force. It was led by General Herkimer, Nicholas Herkimer. Um, and he's coming to relieve um, the siege that's happening at Fort Stanwix that was done by St. Ledger. And what happens actually is um, Molly Brant sees militia and Oneida Indians uh, coming to Herkimer's house and mustering there. And she tells her brother, Joseph Brant, what is happening, who then relays that information um, above him, and eventually it, go, it works its way up to St. Ledger. And so what happens is an ambush is set at Oriskany for those troops that were coming. And it turns out to be an incredibly, incredibly bloody, bloody battle between uh, loyalists, uh, Native Americans, and rebels. Okay. And then who wins the battle? So it's uh, tactically, it is uh, a loyalist and British victory. Uh, they don't allow those rebel troops, those, that militia, to come in and to enter Stanwix and break the siege. Unfortunately, while everyone is away, the camp gets raided by the people that are inside Fort Stanwix. And so um, while militarily it's a, def uh, it's a victory for the British, it's morally um, defeating of them as well. And it's after that point that a lot of the Native Americans that were with St. Ledger's campaign begin to slowly trickle off. Okay. And then about uh, how many of the, uh, it would be Tryon County at that point, militia were, were killed in the Battle of Oriskany? I know it is in, in the high, kind of high to mid hundreds. Um, it's, it's a great deal of uh, militia that are kind of massacred that there at uh, the Battle of Oriskany. Oh. Okay, yeah, and, and I'm, I was trying to think of what I, I had heard a percentage, and I'm, I'm blanking on how, how many, over 50%, I think. Yeah. Okay, all right. And then what, what else is happening? Actually, you mentioned Joseph Brandt uh, yes. as uh, Molly's brother. So tell us about Joseph. So Joseph um, is kind of taken in initially uh, when he's a young boy as kind of almost an adoptive son of uh, Sir William. Um, Sir William takes care of him. He sends him off to school, and then initially he comes back into the Mohawk Valley and works in the Indian Department for Sir William. And it's because of his connections and stuff like that. He can he continues to be a loyalist during the war, and he conducts raids on the Mohawk Valley, um, the Wyoming Valley, the Cherry Valley, and so he's the one that um, is most notably known for the Wyoming Valley and the Cherry Valley massacres. Okay, and will you tell us about both of those? So those both started off as their raids into um, the into the Wyoming and the Cherry Valley, which is south of uh, the the Mohawk Valley, and 
they come into t- towns and um, they burnt kind of everyone down and um, in fits of rage, supposedly, uh, Native Americans and their actually white loyalist counterparts begin uh, murdering uh, the townsfolk and the rebels that were in those areas. Okay, all right. And then uh, after Oriskany, uh so we've we've got the actually when was uh, Cherry Valley and Wyoming uh, massacres? I believe those are in 1777. Okay, so we've got all of this happening in 1777. Yeah. Then after that, what what's going on uh, so for the rest of the war? After that, um, there the British realize that they can't cut the head off the snake anymore, and so they kind of change their campaign tactics. No longer are they, especially in uh, the north, are they trying to conquer and hold land. Instead, they're kind of destroying um, land so that the other side can't uh, uh, get anything from it and any value from it. So what you have is raids that are coming down from Canada, which uh, combine loyalists, um, some regular troops, and then Native Americans as well, and they're burning uh, villages, they're burning crops, they're destroying uh, and killing livestock, and so they're kind of sweeping through the Mohawk Valley, destroying and not capturing. Okay, all right. And then what happened to Mali uh, during the war? So Mali... uh, they find out is the one that tell the United Indians tell uh, that it's, it's her that told on them that they were uh, massing at uh, Herkimer's house. And they do a raids on the Mohawk uh, villages, both uh, the one at Fort Hunter and then uh, Kanjahari. And she's eventually forced to, to live amongst the Cayuga. And eventually she goes out West to Fort Niagara and she lives on Carlton Island. Okay. And, and then uh, she, she actually dies in Canada, is that correct? Yes, she eventually moves to uh, Kingston, Ontario, and, and lives there for the rest of her life and then dies there, yeah. All right, so then would you say during the the war, the, the patriots, the rebels, basically held control of, of this area? Yeah, they, the, the, uh, the patriots, the rebels, are in control of the area. We know that um, in 1777, they launched the Sullivan and Clinton campaign, which uh, goes up through the Mohawk Valley, and their job is to burn out and destroy those uh, Indian uh, villages that warriors are coming from, and so it actually creates a massive native refugee crisis, and all these uh, Native American refugees actually uh, flee up to uh, Fort Niagara to, for uh, safety. Okay. All right. And then, actually, uh, I was just thinking about the uh, five nations, the six nations. How did they align themselves? They were split. Um, so you have the Mohawks, the Cayuga, the Seneca, and then some Tuscarora were fighting with the British, and then you have the Oneida and some Tuscarora that were fighting with the Americans. The, the reason that the Oneidas kind of break off is because um, there is a missionary that was amongst them uh, by the name of uh, Reverend Samuel Kirkland, who kind of has um, this great effect on them and telling them to rebel against uh, the British. And it's because of this that they are the one uh, nation of the Six Nations that breaks away, really, and, and fights uh, for the, the Americans. Okay. All right. So then let's let's zero in on the loyalist. Uh so mm-hmm. it's the 
Mohawk Valley is is basically under control of of the Patriots, and we've got uh, Sir John Johnson leaving. The Johnson family leaves uh, the valley. Yeah. Molly Molly leaves the valley. Um, what about everyday people who are loyalists? Are are they staying? Are they they going? What what's happening with them? So some are staying, some are going. Initially, when uh, the big loyalists leave, such as the Johnson family, a lot of loyalists uh, fled with them. Um, but that wasn't all of them. Um, some loyalists did stay. Uh, we know this because when Sir John does um, his some raids on the Mohawk Valley, there are loyalists that actually come out to help him, and they give him food or sell him food and, and livestock and stuff like that. And so there are loyalists that stay in the valley. They kind of, for the most part, keep their heads down, uh, don't bother anyone, and no one bothers them. Okay. All right. Um, and before we talk about how we can research our loyalists, is there anything else you'd like to add about the the war, about the loyalists in particular? Yeah, so um, really the big thing that should be mentioned is um, – all these loyalists, they do flee up to Canada um, beginning in the 17, uh, 1775 and then throughout the war creating what eventually becomes a giant kind of uh, refugee crisis. Um, these loyalists go up to Canada. They have uh, no land, no property up there, and it's after the war that the British eventually begin to um, – to begin to solve this problem. It should also be said, though, that, uh, too, loyalists could be anyone from kind of all walks of life. Um, we're fortunate enough that we have muster rolls of the King's Royal Regiment of New York, which is the regiment, loyalist regiment, that Sir John creates up in Canada. And we know um, who joins uh, most of them, a lot of them tenants, but some men uh, coming from all over. We know that he has Germans that were eventually that were from Germany that were with the fighting units and the Hessians that were um, coming over and then eventually signing up with the King's Royal Regiment. Uh, we know that most of the men are around 20 to 30 years old, but some as as old as 60 and some younger than uh, 14. And um, coming from all over, we know that there are actually two men that are uh, black, uh, a man by the name of uh, Prince Jackson and then Pompey Matthews that were both black soldiers that were fought. Um, in the King's Royal Regiment, and then there was even a man from uh, Hungary that fought, who was a, ca- a Jewish captain, who uh, fought uh, for the British for 25 years, and so all walks of life were coming to fight for the British, and uh, were loyalists. Right. Interesting. So the, these troops were uh, raised, the regiments were raised in Canada, is that correct? And then they would yeah, make so, raids? Um, loyal, yeah, loyalist units for the most part, they're all raised in loyalist-held areas. And so Canada was our British-held areas. And so uh, the loyalist units that were coming down and doing raids into the Mohawk Valley were raised in Canada and started up there and then came down into the Mohawk Valley and, and uh, burnt and destroyed and then went back up to Canada eventually. Okay. All right. And then I've, uh, you were talking about the refugees, uh, the loyalists mm-hmm. going to Canada. On one of the uh, TV shows, uh, I remember a segment uh, that they focused on these loyalist refugees. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Canada didn't have the uh, facilities to take them in, you know, or, you know, to to accommodate them. So they basically were in refugee camps. Yeah, we know that a lot of um, Native American um, uh, 
people went to Fort Niagara and stayed there, um, basically in camps around Fort Niagara, and um, as well as uh, colonists going there, and then colonists going up to Quebec, Montreal, and trying to um, find a place to stay there as well. Okay. All right. So on that note, we are going to take a break. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. We will be back on the uh, third Wednesday of the month. That is February 15th at 10 o'clock. And uh, the show is going to be Freedmen of the Five Civilized Tribes. My guest uh, will be Angela Walton Raji. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, African-Americans who were enslaved by the five civilized tribes of the southeastern uh, United States, and that's like the Cherokee and the Choctaw. And these uh, slaves were uh, taken to Oklahoma with with them, so they walked the Trail of Tears. And uh, so we're going to find out about uh, who these people were and what types of records uh, are available for researching them. So, Again, that's the Freedmen of the Five Civilized Tribes. Uh, that's on February 15th. And then back uh, for our New York show, uh, that's the first Wednesday of the month on March 1st. We're going to be uh, walk, uh, talking about New York City 
Germans and their churches. And my guest uh, will be Richard Haberstroh. Uh, that show will be at 10 o'clock. And uh, Richard wrote a book uh, called German Churches of Metropolitan New York, a research guide. So we'll be talking about who these people were uh, and their churches. And again, that's the uh, first Wednesday, March 1st at 10 o'clock in the morning Eastern time. If you have any questions for upcoming guests, uh, please find me at janeewilcox.com and uh, send me uh, what, what, uh, what your questions are. Also, if you have any show ideas and, or any feedback for the show, I would love to hear from you. Um, so today we are talking about uh, Sir William Johnson, Molly Brandt, and the Mohawk Valley. And so and with my guest, uh, Michael Perazzini. So, Michael, now let's talk about how, we're, how we research uh, these loyalists. Uh, what, what records are available? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. There are a good amount of records available, and they're under uh, loyalist memorials. Um, so I talked about the refugee crisis that uh, Loyalists had during the war. Um, after the war, the British set up a program where Loyalists could petition the British government for land and property that was lost. <clears throat> and so uh, basically they had to prove themselves to be Loyalists. They had to get some people to uh, back them up and write um, affidavits saying that these, this person was a loyalist, and then they had to go out and um, write down what they had lost. And so these loyalist memorials, which were, are held in, in England and in Canada as well, are basically one giant loyalist rap sheet. And so it tells, it tells you everything, um, what they did during the war, what they owned before the war, and like, what they lost. And so they are a great resource uh, to use. Um, okay. Some other... And Oh, and actually, about the, the Loyalist claims, uh, so as I mentioned, the uh, landlords in the Hudson Valley, the uh, Phillips family, were Loyalists, mm -hmm. and I went to England and I looked at their claims, and uh, two of them actually have listed their tenants uh, as uh, part of their claim. Did any of the Johnson family, do you know if any of the Johnson family uh, listed tenants in their claims? I am not sure if the Johnson family listed uh, tenants in their claims. I do know that the uh, the largest claims in the Mohawk Valley were from uh, Sir John, uh, Guy Johnson, and Daniel Klaus. Um, they um, they were the biggest land owners, and so they had the base claims. And it's quite possible that they themselves uh, listed tenants in, in their uh, loyalist claims. Okay. All right. And the, did Molly Brandt make a claim? I am not sure if Molly Brandt uh, made a claim. I haven't heard um, any information uh, that she did. We do know that she is given, though, a stipend by the British government. Um, and so it, that was before those claims were made, though. Okay. All right. Uh, and what other records do we have for uh, researching these loyalists? Um, some good uh, uh Records are the Johnson Papers before the war to get names of people that were living in the Mohawk Valley. And then um, during the war, you have the Committee of Correspondence Minutes, and so Committees of Safety and stuff like that. And they're all talking about what needs to be done and loyalists that need to be arrested and the likes of that. And then um, the correspondence of uh, Governor Tryon. Uh, governor Tryon was uh, the governor of New York, and then um, during the war, he becomes a general, and uh, he does raids 
um, down in uh, the Connecticut area, but he does correspond with people all around. Um, and then a really good uh, source is the Commissioners for Detecting and Defeating uh, Conspiracies. Um, that was a commission that was set up uh, in 1777-1778, and they go around New York um, hearing people uh, claim against their neighbors that their neighbor is a loyalist, and so they, it's their job to make sure um, that people are siding with the, the rebels and the American cause, and so they go around and they have uh, minutes of that as well. Okay. And do you know which of these have been published? I, like, for example, I know Sir William's papers have been published, and they're actually available from the New York State Library um, on CD, all, I think, 14 volumes. Yes, they are. Um, the Commissioners of, for, for Detecting and Defeating Conspiracies, the Committee of Correspondence, uh, and the Corresp Correspondence of Governor Tryon, they're all published. Um, we actually have them in our research library here at Johnson Hall, so people would like to come to do research on loyalists in the Mog Valley. Um, we certainly have that available for them. Unfortunately, um, loyalist memorials are, are a little tougher to get your hands on. Um, they are, they've been published, um, sort of, and, but they're all microfilmed, and they're held um, in some research libraries, uh, both in the, in the United States, Canada, and uh, in, in England itself. And so um, those are a little harder to get your hands on. All right. And then for, you mentioned uh, the St. Patrick's Masonic Lodge, which I had not heard of before. Are, are we going to find our loyalists in, in those records, too? Uh, you, unfortunately, the St. Patrick's Masonic Lodge goes dark um, during the American War for Independence. One of the major tenets of uh, Freemasonry is the fact that you're not supposed to talk about politics in lodge. And so um, a lot of lodges go dark during the American War for Independence. But um, before that point, um, they do have some records, and I'm not sure if they are published or not, but there are some loyalist names that are among those uh, members that are at St. Patrick's. Okay. All right. And then how about church records? I know they're not going to say this is a loyalist, but are are, are we going to see our loyalists uh, and, and others in the, in church records as well? You'll, you will certainly see your loyalists in uh, church records. Look at uh, Anglican records being that a lot of loyalists were Anglicans. Um, if you find those records, you're certainly going to find um, some loyalists. Um, it all depends on if the church was burnt down uh, at some point or not, if the church still has its records or not. But uh, certainly going through church records, you will find many loyalists in it. Okay. And then how about tenant records? On, uh, we do have uh, one of the, the few things that we the Johnson, uh, Johnson Hall has um, that's original to Sir William is his tenant ledger. Um, it was given to him as a gift in 1774. Um, so we have the original book. Uh, unfortunately, he dies before he begins to fill the entire book filled with tenants. And so there's 125 names of tenants in that book. Many of them are loyalists. And so we have that transcribed, and then we have uh, some information about those tenants um, available that he has written down. Um. Okay. And then, so we, we do have some loyalists who stayed uh, in the Mohawk Valley. They're kind of keeping their heads low. Mm -hmm. If we have our, our ancestors living in the Mohawk Valley during this time, are we going to know for sure whether they were a loyalist or a, you know, or not? Is um, there any way to distinguish? A lot of times you can look up um, 
militia musters and stuff like that. If they, a member, a person was a member of the militia during the war, uh, it's a good chance that they were um, a rebel. If they kind of kept their head down, they really didn't do anything during the war. It's possible that they could have been on either side. Um, the old adage was that um, a third of the people. Uh, in the colonies were for the rebellion, a third of the people were against the rebellion, were loyalists, and then the final third were neutral. It, it seems more like now that it was closer to a quarter for, a quarter against, and then a half that was kind of keeping their head down. And so um, if there's no records that uh, dis uh, distinct them uh, as either way, um, going against the the British or for the British, it's quite possible that they kept their heads down, were a secret loyalist, or uh, were a secret rebel. Okay. All right. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add about researching these people? Um, I, I'd, I'd like to say um, it gets. I know it gets tough. Uh, a lot of the names they change around. A lot of misspellings and stuff like that. So um, it's, it's pretty tough. Like any genealogy and, and research in the Mohawk Valley, but. Um, if once you kind of find that, that person, it, it becomes a lot easier, certainly. Okay. All right. So then let's talk about going back to Sir William and Molly uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and the children. So what happened to Sir William's children with uh, Catherine? So Sir William has the, the three children with Catherine. Um, unfortunately, uh, one of them dies. Um, she is the one that was married to uh, Guy Johnson, Mary, um, she is uh, she dies during childbirth on her way uh, to uh, Os up to Canada. She dies at Oswego in 17, uh, 1775. Um, the other two um, survive, though. Sir John uh, goes up to Canada, and he actually builds uh, Mount Johnson, um, which named after his, his father's original home. And um, then uh, lives there for the rest of his life. His daughter Anne, uh, who is married to Daniel Klaus, goes to Cardiff with Dan, where Dan uh, Daniel Klaus dies. And eventually, she ends up living in Canada for the rest of her life. So they all survive. Okay, and then Molly's children. And then Molly, um, uh, her oldest, with Sir William Peter, actually dies during the British campaign to take Philadelphia in 1777. Um, he was a young officer. Um, he was actually the officer that catches uh, Ethan Allen. Um, he's credited with the capture of Ethan Allen. And so um, he had a, uh, a, a grand career ahead of him, but unfortunately died at a very young age. Um, three of her children eventually did have children, though, uh, Elizabeth, Margaret, and Anne. And um, unfortunately, her son, uh, George, who was her, her youngest son, didn't have any children. So there are no children that... Um, bear the Johnson name that are from uh, Molly. It is possible, though, that there are, could be descendants, and there are descendants from her children um, with Elizabeth and Margaret and Anne, though. Okay, all right. And actually, and then speaking of children, Sir William had children uh, with women other than his two wives. Yes. So we know in his will he mentions two Mohawk boys, a young Brant and a William of Kanjahari. And eventually later in their lives they take the name Johnson as well. And so um, he, in his will he provides land and money to them. Um, and so it, it's possible that, yeah, they, um, there could be descendants of those um, children as well. Okay. And so do we have living descendants today? 
There are living descendants of the Johnson family um, from Sir William and Catherine, and there are descendants of the, the Johnson family from Sir William and Molly as well. Um, currently, there is an eighth baronet of New York. Sir William was the first baronet of New York. He became the, the first baronet after his victory at the Battle of Lake George. And um, right now, that the, the baronetcy is passed down from generation to generation, so we're currently on the eighth baronet. And so there are other but there are other descendants as well uh, living up in Canada that are descendants of uh, Sir William and Sir John. And then um, children, there are, we know of uh, descendants of Molly as well that are living um, throughout uh, North America. All right. And at uh, Johnson Hall, you have the patent of uh, baronetcy for yes, Sir William. Yes, we do. That was, uh, it was gifted to us by the James K. Johnson family. Um, they held the patent of baronetcy, and so we have the original patent of baronetcy, which makes Sir William the first baronet of New York. Okay, and the huge seal, it's spectacular yes. seal on that document. It's a giant, yeah, giant wax seal uh, with the uh, stamp of the Privy Council, which is what made Sir William the first baronet. Okay, all right. So then, then um, let's let's talk about Johnson Hall and and coming to visit. Uh, so he he used his manor house very well, and, and he had a yes. lot of people there. So how how was he using his house? Well, he he was like you said using it as a manor house. Um, we know that he is entertaining people here uh, at Johnson Hall. He would have anywhere between ten to thirty guests staying at Johnson Hall every single night. And so it's uh, Molly Brandt's job to make sure that, being that she's the lady of the house, to provide for the guests and make sure that they're taken care of. And she does an incredibly good job of that as well. We know people that actually write letters thanking her and even send her gifts thanking for the hospitality that was shown here by Molly. Um, this is also a, it's a major business center. Um, besides the main house, you do have – there were some other outbuildings that were along the, the creek, Hall Creek here at Johnson Hall, that um, helped the main house. So there was a blacksmith shop. There was a wash house. There was an Indian storehouse for uh, trade with the Native Americans. And so um, this was a bi very big business center. When Sir William is conducting um, conferences, he is conducting them here at Johnson Hall for the most part. And so um, there's a constant coming and going of people from all walks of life that would have been here at Johnson Hall. Okay. And then how are you interpreting the uh, house today? So currently we have it interpreted as a historic uh, museum, historic house museum. And so we have it set up uh, what it would have been like around 1773, 1774. One of the, the greatest things that we have, one of the greatest assets that we have, is the Johnson Papers. And in those Johnson Papers, we have the inventory of Johnson Hall after Sir William's death in 1774. So we know what was in each room for the most part. Uh, we know what was in the outbuildings. We know what the outbuildings were used for. And uh, because of that, we set each room up uh, to closely resemble what it would have looked like in 1774. Okay. And, and do you actually have uh, some of the Johnson artifacts in the house today that were in the inventory? Uh, we're fortunate enough that we do have some, uh, not a lot, though. Um, during the war, uh, the American War for Independence, Johnson Hall was confiscated. Um, it was confiscated by the 3rd New Jersey Regiment in 1776. And they came up, um, and they, uh, we believe they actually looted uh, a little bit of Johnson Hall and then uh, vandalized the property as well. Um, if you, people are uh, 
fortunate enough to come to Johnson Hall, you'll see our, our main banister on the property, on, in the house, and they'll see that it's marked up, and it's marked up for a reason. We believe that the 3rd New Jersey Regiment, when they came here, uh, took their belt axes and the butts of the muskets and swords and, and marked up the, the banister as a sign of disrespect to Sir John, uh, who was living at the house at the time. And so uh, okay. after that point, the uh, the house was kind of locked up, and then during the war, the contents of the house were auctioned off, and then after the war, the house itself and the, the, the property was auctioned off. And so okay. it's because of that that we don't have any uh, – a whole lot of artifacts are original to the Johnson family. Okay, and then when did the state acquire the property? The state acquired the property around 1906-1907, and uh, initially uh, the Johnstown Historical Society ran out of Johnson Hall, and eventually uh, in the 70s it was opened up as a uh, state historic site. Okay, all right, and how? What, what do we need to know for visiting? What hours, days? So we have a, um, a season where we're open. It um, starts mid-May to uh, mid-October, and during that season, we're open Wednesday through Sunday from 10 o'clock to 5 o'clock with our last tour leaving at 4 on uh, Monday through Saturday, and then on Sundays, we're open from 1 o'clock to 5 o'clock with our last tour leaving at 4. Okay, and uh, how can we find you on the web? What website? Well, we uh, we have a Facebook page in our New York State uh uh, parks page. Um, we're posting events throughout the year. Um, besides giving tours throughout the season, we do have special events. Uh, this year we're going to be having an 18th century market fair on July 15th and 16th. Uh, we also have an annual uh, 5K race at Johnson Jog, which is going to happen in mid-May. And so um, we also have lectures throughout the season as well. And so uh, we're constantly, besides giving tours, giving, uh, doing other events as well that we ho hope that uh, people will uh, enjoy. Okay. All right. Is there anything else you would like to add about Johnson Hall, about uh, Sir William and Molly, the Mohawk Valley, before we uh, come to a close? Uh, I think that um, Sir William and Molly Brant um, kind of go hand in hand with the Mohawk Valley. Uh, you can't really talk about um, the Mohawk Valley without talking about uh, Sir William and Molly. Uh, they certainly, they made it to what it uh, was. Um, they developed the valley and um, they were huge, uh, influential figures in the valley up until and uh, and then after uh, Sir William's death. All right, all right, thank you. Um, so let's uh, uh, focus on you now with my last question. What is your own okay. ancestry? You mentioned a, so, a little bit earlier in the show. Yeah, um, my ancestry is Italian. I'm fortunate enough that um, all of my ancestors came over from Italy, um, from all over though. Um, the majority came from southern Italy, and then some from middle and uh, northern Italy as as well, but all came over in the late 19th century, uh, early 20th century. Okay, and these would be uh, great-grandparents? Yeah, great-great-great-great-grandparents uh, uh, and then great-grandparents. Okay, and, and then did they, where did they uh, go when they got here? Did they, they stay in New York area? Yeah, they actually, a lot of them uh, stayed in the, uh, the tri-state area, so uh, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. Okay. All right. Michael, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. This has been wonderful, and uh, um, I learned about some uh, new resources, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jane. <laughs>
All right. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Have a good day. Unforgettable. Unforgettable.